0: My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you've got your Bibles, we're just going to get started this morning, get right into it. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to the wonderful uh, book of Ecclesiastes, uh, one of the most popular books of the Bible with everybody but the church. Um, The longer you've been in church, the lower the likelihood is that you've actually read Ecclesiastes uh, or heard anybody say anything about Ecclesiastes. Um, If you are not churched, did not grow up in church, you're probably far more aware of the book of Ecclesiastes than the rest of us. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to this amazing book. Um, And while you're getting there, let me try to set up um, what we're going to be doing, how it's going to look, and then we're going to let Ecclesiastes speak for itself. Uh, one of the things that we love to do around here uh, is to open up the Bible, uh, to take a book of the Bible, and, and to walk through a book of the Bible while surrendering our hearts, surrendering our souls, surrendering our minds uh, by God's grace to the truth that He has revealed in Scripture in hopes that He transforms us by His Word into the image of His Son Jesus. And that's what we like to do. We like to open up the Bible, read the Bible, talk about what the Bible actually means, uh, how we tend to rebel and push against what the Bible actually means. And how by God's grace, he continues to give us the mercy and the love through Jesus to be transformed into the picture of what it means to live a a life of of grace and transformation by by his precious, precious gift of grace. So we are going to open up the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. Over the next few weeks, we're going to read a few verses and we're going to talk about them. And we're going to read a few verses, and we're going to talk about them, and we're going to try to understand what this uh, brilliant, uh, wise, and often misunderstood book has to say about our lives today, Uh, what difference the message of Ecclesiastes makes in our life right here and right now. Um, To get there, I want to tell you this. um, One of the most powerful, um, useful, um, transforming pieces uh, of advice uh, of wisdom that I've ever received in my life, uh, went something like this. I had a customer when we used to own a drive through coffee shop um, answer a question for me that I asked him about what the point of everything that we were doing really was. And he said, Robert, I was young, arrogant, and, and, and really frustrated at the time. He said, Robert, if you, if you don't want to be disillusioned in this life, If you don't want to find yourself frustrated and disillusioned with this life, it's best to figure out what illusions you're actually living under and get out. If you don't want to be disillusioned in this life, then it's best not to live under an illusion in the first place. That's stuck with me for 15 plus years. As I've sought to try to figure out, less frequently than I really should, what illusions have captured my heart? What illusions about life, about purpose, about meaning, am I pursuing and trying to live under? What illusions have captured my mind? And how can I get out from under them? I don't think he knew that he was actually probably paraphrasing somebody or quoting somebody, but years later, I would come across this, and this is going to shape our understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. A great philosopher, Georges Bernot, said, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive, that's the thrust of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that does a powerful job of unmasking the illusions that rob our hope, our joy, our passion from the one thing that can ever supply all of that that we're so desperately after in our life. For so many people, especially in the church, the book of Ecclesiastes has always been a problem. How do we deal with the thrust of this message in light of the whole story of the gospel, in light of the whole biblical picture? How do we deal with this one book's story of an honest, authentic look at what life is like in the here and now, right now, in this sin-fallen world? And I wanna say in the beginning, and I'll say as we go through, the problem is not with the book of Ecclesiastes. As we go through this book, especially this week and weeks to come, the message is probably going to disturb you to some degree, and it should. The problem of understanding Ecclesiastes is not the book itself. It really lies more in our hearts and with us. The problem of why this book seems so difficult to so many people and why so many people want to act like it's actually there so that we can say the Bible is inspired, but practically we don't actually deal with it or try to understand what it actually means for our life is not a problem with understanding the book. It's easy to read and understand, the problem is inside our own hearts and our own willingness to face an honest biblical portrait of life in this fallen world. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes actually is. By God's grace, this book, this great story that we're going to talk about in just a minute, is in our Bible to be used by God as a powerful tool of transformation in our life. It's a powerful tool to unmask, The illusions that continue to vie for our heart and continue to promise hope and to continue to promise peace where there really is no peace. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a very contemporary book. It's a book that's very relevant, if you like that word, for our life here and today. It's a book about the human existence, it's a book about what it really means to be human. What does it really mean to be human? Why do we live the life that we live? Is there really any purpose or meaning behind why we do what we do? In the light of all that has gone on in our culture over the last 10 years, especially in the last two years economically, and the upheaval that's come in people's lives and in people's understandings of what they're really after and what can really provide what they feel like they need, this book speaks clearly that that which you have put your hand to, that which you have gone after, that which you have begun to think, really give you what you were looking for is not, is not capable of providing the hope and the peace and the joy that you were so desperately after. This book is an unbelievably beautiful portrait of what I like to call biblical realism, biblical honesty. And if there's one thing we say around here very often, if there's one thing that we have a really hard time doing, it's being honest. The one place that we find the hardest time being honest is probably here is probably gathered with one another as the church. And the reason why we struggle with this book and avoid this book and go around this book and create answers for this book that really aren't really there and explain away this book and the portrait of what it says is because we don't really understand the role that it plays in showing us what really is true, what really is lasting, and why we are here and what it really means to be created by God for God. So enter enter into our human struggle Enter into our human story. Enter into our human questions about meaning in life. The, the book of Ecclesiastes. As we go through it, parts of it are probably going to disturb you. They're probably going to frustrate you, and that's okay because it's poking those illusions. It's poking those things that you've clinged to. It's poking those rabbit holes that you've chased down. Hold on though. It's not a pessimistic book. Contrary to what you may have heard or what you may have experienced the first time you looked at it, it's not a pessimistic book. It's a book of great hope. It's a book of great joy. It's a book that another French theologian called a book of dark grace. It shows us the grace of God and the glory of God by showing us what life would be like if God was not who he said he was. It's a book of dark grace, but it's a book of hope and joy. And we're going to see it as we walk through it. We're going to see what it really means to find joy and satisfaction and passion in being created by God and for God. So you've got it. Open up your Bibles, the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to just begin walking through it because it explains itself better than I could in any kind of introduction. And so we're going to let the book speak for itself, and we're going to read and stop and read and stop and have some fun along the way. So Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, in the first three verses, you're going to get who wrote it, what the point of the book is going to be, and what the question is the book is going to try to tease out. He's going to introduce the whole thing for you. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. Here we go. The words of the preacher. Now I'll stop right there. We're not always going to go that slow. <laughs> if some of you were around years ago when I taught Ephesians, we went that slow. Um, but we're not going to go that slow. But there are things in these first few verses you've got to understand. And the first thing is that the way this story is going to be structured, the way this book is going to be structured is a lot like a, an old episode of the Dukes of Hazard. Did you watch the Dukes of Hazard? Do you remember when the Dukes of Hazard started, this great narrator came on and he would tell you what was going on in Hazard and what was happening with the Dukes and, and what you'd expect to see? And the narrator would quiet down and the show would play itself out. But every time they went to commercial and came back, the narrator would jump in, tell you what had happened and where it was going, and then the Dukes would play out. The way Ecclesiastes is going to work, is like a good episode of the Dukes of Hazzard. There is this narrator who's going to jump in the beginning and tell us what's coming. He's going to explain to us what we're about to see. And then the book of Ecclesiastes, for 12 chapters, is going to be the unfolding of this story. It's going to be the unfolding of, of Solomon's quest for meaning and understanding and purpose in life under the sun, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And every now and then, the narrator is going to jump in, and he's going to make a comment about what we just heard, and he's going to jump back out. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 12, the narrator's going to come back in, and he's going to try kind of sum up what Solomon had found and what he had said, and how his message relates to the entire story of what God's doing and his purposes here on earth. So think Dukes of Hazzard when you think Ecclesiastes. Can you do that? I like to do that. You may have your other story, but that's what's going to happen. And the first thing we find that when the narrator speaks is he says, these are the words of the preacher. So what we're getting is a teaching. We're not getting a, a strictly an autobiography. We're not just getting a story of one man's life. These words have been gathered. The story is being told for a purpose. It's a purpose to teach us something. Along with the other great wisdom literature of the Bible, you'll find in Ecclesiastes that oftentimes this teaching is framed around a father teaching a son. And he's going to teach his son the words of wisdom to live by, to live a life that pleases God and glorifies God here on this earth. And so the first thing we're going to have to find is that as long as this is a story and we love stories and we're going to unpack stories, this first and foremost is a teaching. So verse 1, chapter 1, the words of the preacher or teacher, your Bible may say, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now we're going to get a bigger picture here. We'll stop right there. I promise you we'll pick up in just a minute. The preacher, the teacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, who's that? Solomon. Now, it's important that you get this. You don't need to get caught up in all the the scholarly arguments about who wrote it and when they wrote it and what they did, because as you realize, as you begin to read commentaries like that, scholars have to come up with very strange and ingenuitive ideas for what goes on in the Bible to continue to get book contracts to write commentaries. And so the problem is, and the reality of it is, we don't actually know who exactly wrote this. And we're not really sure at what period in time it actually was written. That's not really the point. The point is that we understand who the story is about and what he's about to say. Because as you understand that this is the story of Solomon's pursuit and Solomon's exploration of meaning in life, that begins to add weight to the story because you know who Solomon was, don't you? I mean, we're going to unpack this man, Solomon, probably next week as he begins to take us on this journey a little more specifically. But Solomon, if you think about it in contemporary terms, makes Tom Brady and Bill Gates look like JV Waterboys on his team. The smartest, the wealthiest, the most athletic, the richest, the wisest, don't compare to Solomon. And here's what he's saying. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you about life under the sun. I've been there, I've done that, and I've done it in a way that you could never even imagine. So listen to me. You've got to listen to me. Don't find yourself in the arrogance of, of, of pursuit, of, of progress, and the arrogance of even youthfulness to think that you can figure it out your way. Don't be blind, Solomon is saying, to what's going on in the past. I have been there and done it in a way that you never will. Now listen to me about what I'm going to say. Listen to me. These are the words and the teaching of a man who, who experienced life in a way that some of us just scratched the surface at. And he's going to tell us about what he's found. He's going to tell us about Why? He came to the conclusions he came, and it would behoove us in our life right now to pay attention to what he has to say. That's what this narrator is trying to get our attention towards. So the words of the preacher or teacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, here's his point. He's going to tell you the point of the book and then unpack how he got there for the rest of the book. Here's the point. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity. Now this is something that we're going to have to explain. 38 times in this book Solomon is going to use this word. He's going to make a reference to life or some aspect of life being vanity. Some of your Bibles will actually say meaningless and that's a really bad translation of what's going on there because the last thing that Solomon is actually saying in this journey is that all of life is meaningless. That's not what he's saying at all. The word that's being translated in your Bible there, vanity or or meaninglessness, Uh, I don't think any of your Bibles have a great translation that actually takes the Hebrew word that carries these unbelievably nuanced ideas, but the word that they're actually translating there means vapor. It means breath. It means Uh, breath-like. In in history, early Hebrews would actually explain the meaning of this word by using the image of, of steam rising from an oven. This word that they're translating, vanity or meaningless in your Bible, is a word that's supposed to connotate a temporary nature, temporality, a fleeting existence. Early Hebrews would take this writing in Ecclesiastes and this continued repetition of vapor of vapors, vanity of vanity, to actually mean that humanity, our life here under the sun, as Solomon is going to talk about, is actually less substantial than steam that's perspective, isn't it? Our life under the sun in the here and now, Solomon is going to unpack this in the, in the realest, most honest look at life in a sin-fallen world is actually less substantial than steam. I mean, contrary to our American illusion of, of immortality and cosmetic surgery, what we're going to actually see, what we're going to actually look at if we are open to the message of What's being said in Ecclesiastes is that we need to lose that illusion. We need to recognize, deal with, and lose that American modern illusion of immortality if we're actually going to live with a true sense of joy and satisfaction. Over and over and over and over again, we're going to see that we've got to quit trying to stick a big giant straw in all the things of life and suck out of them that what they were never meant to give. But it's an illusion That we've continued to fall under and we're going to have to let it go. Throughout the book, throughout Ecclesiastes, and throughout the entire scriptures, whenever this word that's being translated vanity, that actually means breath or vapor or breath-like is actually used, it's talking about the temporality of existence, the fleetingness of existence. He's not saying that it's meaningless. He's actually saying that Despite all of our best efforts to grab a hold of reality, to shape and to make the world into what we want it to be, to affect our desired outcome on reality, that despite all of our best efforts to do that, it can't be done. It can't be done. Trying to pursue meaning and satisfaction by making the world what we want it and shaping it and molding it into something is like trying to grasp at steam. It's futile, it's fleeting and it can never actually provide the thing that we're actually looking for. Another way of understanding this that that I find particularly helpful as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes and understand the nuances of this word as it's used 38 times throughout the book is if you think about vapor, if you think about mist, um, if you think about it being temporary and, and, and illusory, it kind of creates this illusion. Think about, imagine driving late night down an old road thick, heavy mist and fog in the air. As you begin to get into that fog, get into that mist, what happens to your view? It gets obscured. It gets obscured. That vapor, that mist creates a screen and you know the road is out there. You know the road is in front of you. You know where it's going because you've been on this road and you saw it through a distance, but now you're in this mist and it's covering what you know to be true out there, but you can't actually See it. It keeps it hidden. The mist, the vapor, it keeps what you know to be there actually hidden so that you can't actually see it in front of you. That's one of the best ways to understand how the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to use this word. He's going to say that life, our understanding of life, our pursuit of life, is ultimately enigmatic, it's an enigma. And I like enigma better than meaninglessness because enigma actually means that there's something in there, but we just can't figure it out. That's what he's going to be getting after. in life under the sun, as we understand what that means and what he's actually pursuing, all of our best efforts to try to take meaning and define meaning and pull meaning out of life on this earth, ultimately is just enigmatic. We know it's there, but we can't actually see it and get it out. And so we'll take all of our life toiling and toiling and chasing and pursuing and ultimately find ourselves frustrated, disappointed, illusioned by life, by the enigma of life. That's part of what Solomon is saying when he's using this word throughout Ecclesiastes. It's not that there is no meaning. It's just that under the sun, we can't figure it out. We can't figure it out. And so he goes on to say in verse 2, vanity of vanities, enigma of enigmas, all, all of life is an enigma. Everything, all of life is an enigma, Solomon. Family, marriage, work, joy, pleasure, enigma, yes. Can't figure it out. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I make it to do what I want it to do, No matter how hard I try to put everything I've got into it to shape my own destiny, to procure my own future, I can't seem to do it. Enigma, Solomon says. And then in verse 3, he's going to pose the question that got him to the point of verse 2 that he's going to unpack for the next 12 chapters. You got that? Verse 3 is going to be a question that gave us the answer in verse 2 but that the rest of the book is going to unpack. So we're just going to look at it because we're going to have the rest of the book to actually get in deep to what he's saying. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me put it in a possibly more familiar way for you. Mark 8.36, Jesus says this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The focus of both Jesus' question and Solomon's question that he's going to pursue in the rest of this book is really a question about gain, about purpose, about meaning. What gain is there? What profit is there? What is left over after I've done all these things to find all of these things? When it's all said and done, what's actually left over of my life for all of my work, for all of my effort, for all of my pursuit? And the answer that he comes to under the sun is Nothing. Nothing. There is no gain. There's nothing left over. No matter how hard I try to to procure something, to leave my mark on this world, no matter how hard I try to change the things I find around me, ultimately we'll see in just a minute through the rest of the book, you're going to die. And a time will come when no one will remember what you did, who you were, and the world will continue to go on relatively unaffected by your very short very vapor-like existence. This is what Solomon is frustrated by. This is the question of human existence. Not what's the essential meaning of life, but is there really any at all? Is there really any meaning to why we're doing what we're doing? What is there to profit from all of this under the sun? And the rest of the book is Solomon's effort at figuring that out. And we're going to go with him on that journey. We're going to follow him on that journey because it's a journey very much like ours. Because if we're really honest, the deepest fears that we wrestle with in this day and age aren't hell. Nobody lays at night worrying about hell. Well, a lot of us lay at night worrying about death. But for a long time, we think we've got that figured out, right? we got ways to avoid that. Ways to prolong that. Ways to get out from having to deal with that reality. But if you're really honest, late at night, lights down, voices gone all by yourself with your own soul and your own conscience, the thing that you're really afraid of? Meaninglessness. Finding out that it was all not worth it. What's the point? Did my efforts, my life, really mean anything? Was there really a point to it all? That's what Solomon is going to get after, but there's something in this verse that we've got to be very clear on that we've got to understand if we're going to make sense of the rest of the book, because he gives us the context for his search. All of a sudden you're going, great, I'm glad I'm here this morning. Sounds wonderful. Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. I'm going to die. He's going to give us a context that we've got to get if we're going to understand the book. And if we're going to profit from this book, we're going to have to get what he's saying. Solomon says, I'm going to step out. I'm going to extend myself on a pursuit of all of life's great pursuits, and I'm going to do it. And here's the context that you've got to get. I'm going to do it under the sun. Under the sun is a very clever, metaphorical, is that a word? Metaphorical? Metaphorical, pictorial way of saying that Solomon is going to pursue meaning. He's going to pursue purpose. He's going to answer this question and try to find the answer to this question under the sun. In ancient times, uh, in ancient cosmology, uh, they understood the world to be much more simple than we do now. And they saw the world and the skies and the heavens kind of like a dome. The Bible will record the firmament of the heaven. The firmament was kind of like uh, when a man would take a piece of metal and bang it out into a, a dome shape. They would look up at the sky and they would see the world kind of like a firmament, that there was this ceiling up there that was shaped like that. And, and they believed that the gods in different cultures, and they believed that the gods lived above the sun, above that firmament. And everything under the sun was life devoid of the impact and the association with the gods. And Solomon says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stretch out and and step out and pursue all of life's great pursuits to try to find, is there really any purpose to it all? But I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it without God. I'm going to do it devoid of any revelation, any interaction, or or any point of understanding God as part of my story. I'm going to write a story of my existence and try to understand what the point of life is like, not with God, not with God. At the center, but with man at the center, Solomon is going to take this great pursuit. He's going to unpack everything that we want. He's going to go after all the illusions that we so easily find ourselves entrapped by. He's going to get into money. He's going to get into power. He's going to get into uh, prestige. He's going to get into friendships. Um, he's going to get into building and projects. He's going to get into everything that we want everything that we chase, and he's going to do it devoid of an understanding of God or any place that God has it, and he's going to come to the conclusion that he came to in verse 2, it's all enigmatic. Without it, there's no understanding of what purpose or meaning really is. So you've got to understand as we go through Ecclesiastes that Solomon is, is telling this story by narrowing his experience of life down to a life lived apart from God. God is going to play no defining role in Solomon's understanding of life in this story. God is gonna play no defining role in Solomon's understanding of meaning or purpose throughout Ecclesiastes. He's he's not atheistic. He doesn't believe that God doesn't exist. You'll find God existing throughout Solomon's story, but it's not a story that finds God at its its central point. It's a story much like ours that we write and we understand ourselves to be a part of. A story where we're to go out and to make our own mark, to get our own in, to secure for ourselves our own purpose, our own meaning, our own pleasure, of which God is simply a part of. God is a part of the story that so many of us think that we're living and that we're a part of instead of us being a part of the story that God has been writing for all of eternity. That's what Solomon is going to do. He is going to deny the story that God has created the earth and that there is a larger reason for why everything is. And he is going to make God a part of his story by which he tries to figure out what meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction there really is in this life under the sun. And so as you go through it, you're going to get frustrated Because partly you're going to resonate with some of his conclusions, but you need to remember it's not the whole story. There's a particular context for his pursuit. It's a pursuit that's devoid of the revelation of God, of the relationship of God. God's not speaking and God's not breaking in. He's going to go after a self-determined, self-existent life, independent of God. Make sense? Verses 1, 2, 3. Here's the thing. It's going to be a story of Solomon's pursuit of meaning in life apart from the larger story of redemption, a larger story of God creating the world for his glory. And he's going to figure out what it means. What can we really find in all of it? Remember, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. And now Solomon's going to take us on his journey. And by God's grace, he's going to slowly unmask all of those things in which we have hoped in for so long that can do nothing but deceive. You ready? He's going to give us the big picture here in the next few verses. Verse 4. We're going to read for a little bit and then talk again. So here's what he says. I'm going to sum up for you the rest of the book. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind always returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now here's what Solomon's saying, if you want to keep getting into pictures that he's giving us, what Solomon is saying and what he's going to unpack in this first little chunk of verses is that life, if you're really honest, if you really deal with the things that you wrestle with and think you're not supposed to deal with, life is a whole lot like that hamster in a wheel. Your life is a whole lot like that hamster in a wheel. that gets in that thing, running, 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 chasing, 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 and actually never really going anywhere. If that's kind of insulting, you can think about your life being a lot like living a life on a treadmill or a stationary bike, which I deplore. Because no matter how hard you work, how much you sweat, and what that screen says, when you get off the bike, you're in the exact same place you were when you started. There's absolutely zero sense of progress or achievement or accomplishment. And if you're really honest, that's what life feels like a lot of times. And that's what Solomon is getting after. You run and you run and you run and you work and you work and you work, but when it's all said and done, the temporality of life, the temporary nature of existence is such that the earth, it's going to go on forever doing exactly what it's always done. And you, you're going to have a little bit of time, and then you're going to be gone. And when you're gone and people look at the earth, it's going to be doing the same thing it was before you came. He's, he's putting that temporary nature of our life and our pursuit in context of the larger existence of creation. And you've got to get it. The wind keeps blowing. The rivers keep rolling. The seas keep filling up, but they never overflow. The sun keeps rising. It all keeps going. It's unaffected by us. It's really unaffected by us. In verse 8, again, We'll say it a lot if you're honest. That life on the treadmill, that life in the hamster wheel, that going, 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 never really knowing what we're actually accomplishing, what it's actually doing, it's really wearisome, isn't it? It's really tiresome, isn't it? It gets really frustrating, feeling like you try and you work and you go and you toil and you do and you pursue. But when it's all said and done, you sit down and you think, what was it all for? I didn't really go anywhere. I didn't really get anything. My life is a whole lot like Groundhog Day. You see that movie, Bill Murray? I mean, when you get really honest, a lot of times we feel like our life is just another play out of Groundhog Day. We wake up, go to work, do what we do, and when it gets really quiet at night and we deal with the things that we deal with in our souls it feels like there was really no point. It's just exhausting. We get ourselves into this non-satisfying pursuit of things here on the earth, and it just wears us out. If we had time, I'd play this great song by Radiohead called Fake Plastic Trees. Some of you know the song. If you don't, go hear it. But man, the rest of the world deals with this in a way that the church just won't. It's a beautiful song about the weariness of life. But the weariness of pursuing all of these illusions, of pursuing all these things that we think will bring us what we actually want, and the refrain throughout the entire song is just, it wears me out. It wears me out. All these things, when they're said and done, they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do in my brain. The illusion that was to bring the hope was deceiving, and I'm worn out by it. But here's what Solomon's gonna do in the next few verses because there are some of you in here that hear that and you go, well, that's too bad for those people who feel that way. But what happens is that we get really accustomed to trying to find ways to make that not so, right? You know the feeling of wrestling with whether or not it was all really worth it. That your life is caught up in Groundhog's Day and the hamster wheel but you get really good at figuring out ways to bring some kind of spark into the whole thing to try to convince yourself that that's not really the case, don't you? That's what he's gonna get. And actually, listen to this. I'm not gonna explain, let him explain it. Verse nine, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun, of which it is said, see, this is new. no. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It it seems like when I read it sometimes, if I think about Solomon talking to me, it's like he's anticipating some kind of rebuttal to his telling me that I'm living in a hamster wheel, that it's all frustrating and that there's no point to why I'm running around. It seems like he's anticipating this thing where we're going to say, no, 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 that's not the case. No, no, no. There are times when I feel like it's gotten somewhere. There are times when I I feel like there's a reason and a point to it all. And it feels like he's jumping in and saying, nope, nope. People before you, people with you, and people after you will think they've figured out some new way of understanding what's going on, some new angle that's going to deceive them into thinking that it's not really not pointless. But you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. There's really nothing new. There's no new ideas. They're just old ideas repackaged in new ways for new generations. Have you ever noticed that even movies tell the same story? We're having to go back to the 70s to remake prequels because people now haven't come up with good scripts to entertain us for what we're doing. So we're having to come up with prequels to old stories because we can't come up with any new ones that are really worth any salt. Walk down to half the stores in the mall. We're just recycling the same clothes we wore 20 years ago. The same fashions that we wore 20 years ago that 10 years ago we wouldn't have been caught dead in. We're just recycling. I really wish I had some of my clothes from junior high. I might go to American Apparel and, and, you know, open my own store. I mean that was early eighties, folk. There's I mean, nothing new about all that stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. But we find ourselves convinced and deceived in this illusion of progress that we've got this new thing, that this thing that I'm doing, this thing that I found, this idea that I'm a part of, it's gonna fix that hamster wheel and it's gonna bring this thing, this meaning and this purpose. And he's saying, No, there's nothing new. Listen. It's only because there's no remembrance of the past that the illusion of progress even exists. Does that make sense? It's only because you you don't remember the past. It's only because you fail to acknowledge what's come before that this illusion of something new even exists. If you remembered the past and were a student of what's occurred, if we listen to what Solomon's going to say for the next few weeks under this book, this whole illusion of thinking that we've got the new idea, it can't exist because you've got to look at it and go, nope, it was already here in the past, in the ages before. And nothing new is actually going to come after. But even more specific, um, even more pastoral, this idea of thinking that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that this frustration, this hamster wheel, this struggle with meaning isn't really true for our life We've got to deal with this thing because we deceive ourselves so easily into thinking that's not true by trying to find some new thing that we think can bring that spark into our life, into our, into our life, and into our, our world. I mean, if we're really honest, we as a culture are, no matter where you sit economically in this room, you sit among the most affluent people in the entire world. I don't care what's going on in the economy in this country right now, we are still far more affluent than everybody else. And when we wrestle with these struggles and these things that Solomon is going to point out about life in a fallen world that goes on in a sinful heart, we are so easily deceived by grabbing the newest thing, building the newest house, buying the new boat, getting the new car, getting the new thing that we think is going to bring this spark into our life that we can look at and go say, no, this is why. Here's the meaning. Here's the purpose and we begin to deceive ourselves into the illusion of meaning by acquisition. And we try to hide this big elephant in the room, in our hearts and in our souls, by acquiring more shiny things and big things, thinking that it's going to solve that problem of struggle and meaning and lack of joy and passion. When We find ourselves joyless. What's the point? I did all these things I was supposed to do and I find myself still unhappy. We go out and buy stuff. We go out and get something new. That shiny new phone that we just have to get, that all of a sudden makes us giddy about ourselves and what we've got, that we've just got to show everybody else. We find the ways to take this elephant and try to hide it under the coffee table and pretend like it's not really there. And if we're not careful, we'll live under this illusion and we'll find ourselves chasing these things for our entire lives. And what we'll see week after week in this book is that you know what? It's not worth it and you're going to die. Build by, you're going to die. And you can try to hide that thing under the table all you want. You can go after and buy the newest things and get the latest things and try to fill that struggle, but it's not going to fix you. Those things are not going to fix you, they're not going to fix what you're struggling with that you know is going on inside your soul. This is what Solomon's going to get after. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? Yeah, I'm going to die. And that new car I just got that big loan for isn't going to make me happier. (laughs) Great. But this is huge for us. We tend to mask this weariness of life under the sun with new things. It's not going to solve the problem. We can't try to prove to ourselves that there is something greater by the things that we get. It's going to leave us empty. It's going to leave us worrisome. And it's going to leave us tired. And here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. No matter how hard I look and how hard I try, there's no Chris Tomlin song for Ecclesiastes. I don't think Hillsong's done an album about this book. I don't think Matt Redmond's ever pondered on Ecclesiastes and wrote great songs for the church. Realism, the reality of life in this world is just something that We go to great lengths and great pains to push away. But remember, we said this in the beginning, the function of this book, the greater function of this this book of Ecclesiastes is to stop us from pursuing that which can't fulfill us. It's to step in and to show us all those things that we're chasing, how they actually play out in life. Solomon's standing here and going, look, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. That thing you're doing, that thing you're chasing, that illusion that you're deceived by and hoping in, it's not new. I have been there, I have done it, I will do it in a way that you can never do. And listen, it's empty. It's temporary. It's enigmatic. And it's unable to do the thing that you're trying to get it to do. In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, you must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. Ecclesiastes is here to deconstruct, to destroy, to unmask the illusions that will ultimately disappoint us in this life, the illusions that we so easily buy into, live out of, chase after. That's what this book is for. To be, to be human partly means that you embrace a, a basic, larger story through which you understand your world and make your way through it. You understand a bigger story of the purpose of the world, where you fit into that story. And as you understand that story, it informs how you interpret the experiences that you live and that you experience in your life today. Part of being human means that you have that story and there's a lot at stake in getting it right. There's a lot at stake in understanding the story of what you're a part of. Peter Kreeft, a uh, great philosopher up at Boston College. He said that of the 21 great civilizations in history, ours, the modern West, is the only one that doesn't teach its citizens any answer to the question of why they exist. We're the only great civilization on the planet to not provide for its people a comprehensive understanding of the human story. In place of that, we leave it up to you. You define for yourself the story of what you're a part of. You define for yourself the meaning of why you're actually here. You define for yourself the larger framework for which you understand the world, your place in it, and what's it all about. So our society has done nothing, to put it very plainly, but leave us up to our own collective ignorance. That's what it's done. Society has left us to our own best ideas to weigh in on the most important questions of life. Unbelievable. And as we grow as a people, as we grow as a culture, as we grow as a society, we know more and more and more about less and less and less. Do you ever realize that? As information is multiplying at the most astounding rate in all of history, we know more and more and more about less and less and less, more and more about little things and less and less about big things, more and more about everything with a little e and nothing about everything with a capital E. And that's the place that we find ourselves. We live our lives and then we die and we don't know why. We live our lives and we have no idea why. We have no idea why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, what the point of it all is and how it fits into the larger understanding of the world and then we die. Welcome to America. Welcome to the 21st century. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. This is a question, a struggle a reality that's common to all humanity, to all humanity. Leslie Newbegin, a great missionary in India, and then another great missionary to his own Britain, um, he said that the way that we understand human life depends upon what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story that my life is a part of? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the question of what story I find myself a part of. You have to know why you're here if you're going to experience the joy, the passion, the satisfaction that you're so desperately after. Our experiences in in life, our, our experiences in this world only make sense to us in the context of a larger story that we believe is actually true about the world. And everybody has one of those stories. Everybody in here believes a larger story about what's true about the world. And you understand and interpret what you experience in daily life based on that story that you believe to be true. And there are lots of stories out there. And what story you buy into and believe into will determine how you interpret your life and your world. I'll give you an example. We got a little bit of time. Big story about the purpose of the world and the existence of the world and what it means to be human. Well but that story comes by way of you being a random product of time and chance It just happened to be who you are and where you are in this earth through a long biological process of evolution, then what you actually do today and tomorrow really has no meaning. The bigger picture of how the world actually got here and what's really true about this world will define how you interpret your individual experiences of it. So if you really were a random product of time and chance, what point is there to your existence anyway? There was no point in the beginning, so what's the point now? It's a bigger story. And you understand your life and your experience as you believe something to be true about those bigger stories. And everybody has one. And Solomon is going to take that story, that bigger story of life apart from God, and he's going to live it out right in front of your eyes. He is going to live it out in painful, excruciating detail. He's going to go there, get the shirt, and then tell you what it's all worth so that you don't have to do it. There is, though, a story. There is a grand story that gives a bigger picture for who we are and what it means to be human, how we understand our life and how we understand it in relation to this world that bigger story is the larger biblical story that says you are here for God. You are here for God. The world is here for God. It's a story in which we as humans were created to live in what the old theologians called Corum Deo in Latin. It's a bigger story that says you were created by God for God to live in the presence of God to God's glory as you lived your life in dependence upon him. That's the bigger story through which the Bible says we find ourselves in. That God created us for himself with intention and purpose. That we were to live for him, in dependence on him, to his glory. And in that, we were created to find joy and satisfaction. That's the story through which we were created to live in. But we continue to choose to live out of a different story. A story that says there's wisdom and satisfaction and purpose and meaning apart from God that we can come up with our own best plan, that we can come up with our own meaning, that we can find our own joy, that we can find our, our own satisfaction, and we live as if there were those things and meaning and purpose apart from God. That's what happened in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. That's what continues to happen to this day with you and I, is what will happen with our kids as they live their life out. We will rebel in sin against God and against the story for which we were created. All along, time after time, we will fail to find the meaning We will fail to find the purpose, we will fail to find the joy, and we will fail to live. And we will simply just exist. There's a huge difference between living and existing. The story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, the story of humanity is centered upon God, and it gives us a life of joy. It gives us a fulfilling life, not a simple existence not knowing who we are or where we're going or why we're here apart from God does not give us wisdom. It doesn't give us power. It doesn't give us meaning. It leaves us empty. It leaves us with just existence. And the Bible story, the biblical story, the bigger story that we're a part of is one that says in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that rebellion, in the midst of our choosing to find all of those things apart from God, in the story that Solomon is going to live out in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we live out day in and day out right here in Richmond, Virginia, in the 21st century, the story is going to go that Jesus came into this world to make right all that our rebellion, all that our sin, all that our folly has made wrong in the world. That God sent Jesus into this chaos to answer all the frustration that Solomon brings up. He's going to provide the answer for all the angst, all the emptiness, all the frustration, all the disillusionment that Solomon brings up that we still experience here. The biblical story is that Jesus didn't just come to share in our suffering, but to die for it and then ultimately rise from the grave to conquer it. That's the story we find ourselves a part of. And when we come to God through Jesus in repentance and faith, what you begin to see is that your life is part of a much bigger story. It's a bigger story of God's purpose for the world, God's purpose for your creation to live before him and satisfaction on him, dependence on him, to his glory. You're a part of his story of redemption for all of creation, that what has gone wrong will ultimately be made right, and you are part of that story. No longer like Solomon is going to do in Ecclesiastes, do you try to write your story and make God a part of it, but you begin to see that you are a part of a much bigger story. That your life is hidden in God's bigger story. Your life is defined by God's bigger story of who you are and why you're here. And when you begin to understand that, when that begins to grasp you, when the illusions that you chase and that so grab you and and lie and deceive you begin to fall away, when they're unmasked for what they are, man, the peace, the peace that begins to settle over your soul the angst that gets quieted down, the frustration and the weariness that grinds on our daily life begins to be set aside. And we begin to see that we are a part of something much bigger, a part of something much greater, a part of something much more lasting, a part of something much more fulfilling, that our life is not our own. It's not our story. But we're a part of God's story everything is a part of his story and we begin to have a better understanding and a more solid understanding of who we are and why we're here jesus said in john 10:10 10, 10, that i have come here's why i have come i have come that they may have life and have it abundantly apart from his story we might be here but we're just existing we're not actually living. Jesus came that we might have life, that we might live it abundantly, that we, were crea- that we might live the life that we were created to live, and all the illusions, that they would get unmasked, and they would get set aside and seen for what they really are. And so here's what we're gonna hit. Solomon's just kind of introduced the big picture of what we're doing. I know you're glad you're here. I know you're anxious for where he's going and all of this, And here's what we're gonna hit in the weeks to come. Week in and week out, I want you to deal with this until you are ready. Man, until you are ready to honestly deal with life under the sun. Until you're ready to deal with an honest portrayal of what life is like under the sun in this sinful world and all the ways that you pursue satisfaction and meaning apart from God, outside of his story. Until you're ready to deal with that, you're not gonna find meaning. You're not gonna find purpose You're not gonna find joy. You're not gonna find satisfaction. You're gonna be stuck on the treadmill. It's gonna be you and that hamster in that wheel, running, 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 running. And the alarm's gonna go off, and you're gonna hit snooze, and it's gonna go off, and you're gonna get up, and you're gonna go to work, you're gonna eat lunch, you're gonna finish work, you're gonna come home, you're gonna watch TV, you're gonna go to bed, and the alarm's gonna get off again, and you're gonna get tired. And it's gonna get weary until you're ready to deal with the illusions the lies, the things that promise hope but always deceive, you're gonna be stuck. You'll be stuck in a story that's not true about who you are or who you were created to be and you'll find yourself settling for an illusion. You'll find yourself settling for an illusion. That is not what we want. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anybody in this world. I don't want you to settle for an illusion. That's why Ecclesiastes is so vitally important. That's why the dark grace of Ecclesiastes, that shows us the grace of God by showing us what it would be like if the grace of God through Christ didn't actually exist is so important. Because until you're ready, until you're ready to lose hope in everything that deceives, you won't be prepared to hope in everything that can define and give you what it is you really want. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the absolute realism of your word. Over and over I'm amazed at how true and how honest um, your scripture is to life. You hide nothing. You hide behind nothing. There's no emotion. There's no struggle. There's no temptation. There's no frustration that's common to all of us that is not in your word. I thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. I thank you for the truth that it shows. I thank you for the illusions that it brings out into the light in my own heart and all the ways that I have sought to define the story of my life by my life. And I've sought to find a place to fit you in instead of understanding that I am a part of your great story. When I thank you that Ecclesiastes is there to show me my heart, to show me the emptiness of all the things I waste my time on, and to call me back to that which can only truly satisfy. I pray that this becomes clear in the weeks to come. I pray that you give us a desire to shed and to unmask the illusions, to lose the illusions that we so easily get caught up in. Lord, as we do this, may you be glorified as the one who, who brings us life, who gives us life, who calls us out of existence and into abundant life, that you would be given the glory for that. And Lord, that we would, that we would experience and that we would celebrate the joy that comes. Or let our lives be lives of joy lives of exuberance because of who you are, how that defines our understanding of who we are and what that means for the life we live. Let us be a people of joy. Let us find ourselves in your story, your story of grace and mercy and joy. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who gave himself up so that this this could be a reality for us, that we wouldn't live in illusions, but that we could live in the reality of your grace and mercy. Amen.